All right, thank you so much for being here with us today at Gulfside Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Paul Erminger, and I'm the lead pastor. And I don't know what your mornings look like or what sound comes out of your phone when you wake up, but I, I doubt any of us have the, the privilege of having a big hair band there to pump us up and get us ready for the day. And, and some of us, less morning people, more coffee. Some of us, you know, on, on Sundays, I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor, so I'm just going to be this way. But like Sundays, like I can't sleep, like I'm ready to get up and get here but I know not everybody comes into church just amped up and pumped for the day, let alone the rest of the week. And, and, and so what is it that, that, that makes you bold? What is it that makes you ready to like get after it in life? Because when we look, and, and we're in this series right now, and, and we're, we're in this section where it's like the early church was so bold, and they were so ready to go that, that it just... It, it's a whole different mindset and culture than the way that we live. And sometimes because their situation is so different, it can be hard for us to apply the truths that we see in this to our life. And I want to catch you up real quickly. We're in the middle of a series that's called Big Church. And this series is not about like how to add people to your church. It's not about numerical stuff. It's really just a study on the early church. What happened at the very beginning? Because Jesus, he lived the perfect life. He died on a cross to pay for our sins. He was resurrected from the grave to show that God gave him victory over sin and death for our sake. And then he gave some teachings and then he left us to complete his mission. And one of his first instructions was, you guys need to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And we studied this and we looked at this and in the early church, they were all together in this upper room, and it was like this really crazy spiritual moment. I don't know if you've ever had those moments where it's like you're praying or you're worshiping with people, and it's just intense, and the emotion is, is high. And they had this moment where they were praying, and the Spirit of God fell, and it gave them this sign where they could speak, and people from other languages would understand what they were saying. And it was incredible, and we talked about how the whole point of the upper room experience of prayer it wasn't that they would have this emotional high or the spiritual entertainment, but it was that they would go hit the street level and preach the word, and that was the purpose of that. We, we've talked about how the word church in, in scripture, it actually, it's this word ecclesia, and it means gathering, and, and it's more about the people that, than the term church really lends itself towards, because we think of church and we think of the Lord's house or the temple, but in the New Testament, the church, it wasn't either of those things. It was the gathering, the assembly of the people who believe in the resurrection of Christ. And how that was the, the rallying cry around everyone. And then last week, we looked at these bold prayers that Peter prayed. That Peter and John, they got arrested for preaching the gospel. And then they were brought before the leaders of the temple. And they were seriously threatened and told to stop preaching in that name. And, and then they were let go and they went back to the church and the church was fearing that they were going to get put to death and they went back and their prayer was, God, would you reach out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders and would you give us great boldness in preaching? And that, that, that catches it up to, to kind of this moment in this chapter of Acts where the, the disciples have all gone out and they're preaching and they get arrested again and this time instead of Peter and John, it's all 12 of them. They spend the night in jail, and as they're there in the night, the angel of the Lord comes, releases them from jail, and when the jailers come, the locks are still on the doors. They can't explain it. They're gone, and then word gets to the temple leadership that those men that we arrested, they're back in the temple, and they're preaching again. And that's where we're going to kind of pick up today's passage, but, but as we kind of start setting our mind further on what we think of church, do you realize that you, you don't just think of something when you hear the term church, but you feel something? 
I know that when I was little, uh, when I was younger and was getting dragged to church, I, I would feel, I could feel the collar of my shirt choking me. I feel like that's what I felt when I, went, when I thought about what it was like to go to church. I got to put these clothes on, and there's these weird smells at church. They bring inc- incense up and down the aisle, and, and it smells weird there, and the people smell weird there, and the whole situation just felt weird to me as a child, and that's what I felt. And so for me, when I started going to church, I had to I had to deal with, okay, this is kind of what I feel and think and experience when I go to church. Some people, they they look crazy to you, but they come here and they're like super excited about what's going on at at church because when they think of church, they think of joy and love and friendship. And we all feel a little bit something different when we hear the word church, when we think about going to church. Some of us came here because we couldn't wait to get here. Some of us got dragged here. Some of us came because we got to get a free lunch after church if we come. And, And I understand there's different motivations that bring us here. But, but what we want to be is we want to be the type of church, and we want to think about the type of church that Scripture describes when we, when we say the word church. And, and there's this element of boldness, uh, of, of bravery, and there's this element uh, of being willing to pay a cost that we see in this. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 5 with me today. We're going to start at verse 27. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll be projecting the words on the screen so you can, can read along. And, and I'm just going to try to make, make sure some of these things are clear. Uh, the, starting at verse 27, it says, Then they, they brought the apostles, this is, this is all 12 of them, before the high council. And for those of you who are detail-oriented, remember there are 12 because they replaced Judas who died. So it brings all of the, the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. And he said, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. And I'm going to make people nervous by coming down, down here, but I just, I, I feel like this helps me understand it a little bit better. So like the high priest, he was probably a little dude like me, like skinny or, or short, because we just lend ourselves towards just books and studying and loving knowledge. And he, what it says in here is that he confronted him. And he's talking most likely to Peter because Peter's the ringleader. Peter was, was a fisherman. Peter was probably a big dude. I, I love you, Travis. Stand up with me. Uh, <laughs> P- Peter probably looked something like this. Something like this should terrify something like this. I just want to identify that, all right? Um, stay standing, stay standing. Because not only did, like, it, the, the context of it says that, like, the high priest was confronting. I know, I would have grabbed John if John was closer, but it just happened. Uh, he was confronting him, and he was up in his, didn't I tell you not to preach in his name anymore? And, and if you think back historically, Peter just swung a sword and took someone's ear off not long ago. So Peter was willing to, and Peter's not a, a fighter, so he was swinging for center mass, all right? Peter missed the head, got the ear, Peter was willing to kill somebody. It's not smart to do this, but this guy was so high up on his own power that he was willing to not even think about physically what should be happening here. All right, you can sit down. That helps. Um, so, so the high priest, he, he's up in Peter's grill. I told you not to speak in this name anymore. And, 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 he's, and he's yelling at him. And, and, and there's this tension. And, and he, he then says, you, you try to, you're trying to put this man's death on us. In, in verse, I'm going to go back to verse 20, 27. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. Didn't we tell you again to teach, didn't we tell you again, never again teach in this man's name, he demanded. Instead, you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you have made, and you want to make us responsible for his death. Now this is the high priest. Jesus was brought before the high priest and questioned by, by the high priest. 
The high priest said, clearly tell us, are, are you the Messiah? And, and Jesus responded, it is as you say, and you will see the Son of Man coming on, on the clouds of glory and power. And, and, and then the high priest tore his clothes and, and said, what else do we need to hear? This is blasphemy. He should be put to death. And, and so the high priest saying, you're trying to put this man's death on us. And Peter responds the way that Peter normally does in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Peter is just, he, he's an easy guy to get along with, isn't he? I mean, he's making friends everywhere. And, and right now, this high priest who, who's like a man who's used to being the boss, used to being the authority, when he walks down the street, people literally would get out of his way as to not bump into him or nudge him because of his stat, status and his position. And, and here, this fisherman who he already told, you have to stop doing this, is answering back to him, and I'm going to tell you, the tension was getting boiling hot in this situation. And so he, he replied, I'm not listening to you, I'm listening to God. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so that the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. The high priest is ticked off because the seats of the people of Israel who used to be coming to listen to them, to his temple, to his leadership, they're now going and, and they're hanging out with, with Peter and John and hearing the apostles. And, and it might be like, you know, I know we've heard you read from the scroll of Isaiah many times, but Peter healed my grandma. And, and so I feel like I need to go hear what they have to say. Like there's things happening over here. There's signs, there's wonders. And, and, and we all know, we all saw that Jesus guy get crucified and then he was risen, and, and none of us can explain that. You can't explain that. The Roman guards, they can't explain that, and, and so there, there's this tension of, of this sway in where the people were going, and, and then there's this interaction, and then Peter continues in verse 32, and he says, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. Peter poked him in the eye a couple times during this little, little, little rant of his. The, the first is, yeah, you did crucify him, God showed his approval. The people of Israel need to be coming to him. And when he says we are witnesses of, of this, I mean, think back to that truth that the chief priest, he was there. He was condemning Jesus to death. The other men in leadership, they were there. They saw it happening. They saw the blood of the Savior get spilled. They were all witnesses. And in fact, any of those men had probably heard Peter and the other apostles preach so much that they could have told you what the gospel was. But they didn't have the Spirit of God in their life. Because knowledge of the story, that's not what changes us, that's not what saves us, that's not what makes us spiritually alive. Knowledge of the story is great and it helps along the way, but there's a point of saying, I've heard what God is teaching, I've heard the truth that Christ lived, he died, he was resurrected from the grave, and if I place my trust in him, if I ask for forgiveness, I will be forgiven. And as 2 Corinthians 5 says, I'll be a new creation in Christ. There's that truth. But until you place your faith and your trust, you don't have forgiveness, and you don't have spiritual new life, and you don't have the Spirit of God. There's lots of people who were witnesses to what Jesus did for them. 
but not all of them were believers. And in the same way, we see it played out in the church. There's some people who, for whatever reason, they just kind of fall in love with the church culture, and they enjoy being around it. But when it comes to personally obeying Christ, when it comes to personally being connected with God, they've put up walls, and it's, it's spiritually just death. And when they're taken away from the, the group of people who are Christians at church, it's like they just do their own thing. And I just want to make sure that we're all dialed into the fact that you can recite the story of the gospel and you can understand it in your head, but until you invest your heart in it, until you trust God, it doesn't, it doesn't change you. It doesn't have the power that it should have. And some of you guys came to church because you want to experience God do something in your life and you want to feel right with him and you've been hanging around and you've been listening. You may have even been reading but if you haven't given him your heart yet, you're not going to experience all that God has for you. Because in that moment where you give him your heart, Scripture promises, Scripture promises that you become adopted as a child of God and that he makes you spiritually alive where you were spiritually dead and the Spirit of God comes to live inside of your life and guide you and counsel you and lead you into the truth. And that's, that, that's something that when it happens, you know. We can be witnesses uh, of the truth, but that doesn't mean that we've experienced it personally. And so I want to say it this way with my first point. The church, we're clarifying what the church is. The church isn't the people who know the truth. The church is the people who obey the truth. And I want to push back in case mentally, you know, you're, you're, you're good at um, sparring with theological things. So, well, that sounds a lot like work, works theology. Well, it, it's the fact that it's, it's faith and works, as Scripture describes God did something amazing for us that we could have never done for ourselves, but until we respond the way that God has said that we have to respond, we, we don't experience what God has for us. There's an element of response. There's an element of being willing to obey. Making him Lord means that we are the subject. The church isn't the people who know the truth. The church is the people who obey the truth. And in this time, over 5,000 people, in these short couple weeks of the beginning of the church where we see Peter having this conflict with the leadership of the church, over 5,000 people have made a decision to follow Christ, and it made the old guard, the old temple leadership look terrible. And so we're, we're continuing on in the story in verse 34. But one member, make sure I'm not skipping. Okay, I am skipping. Rolling back down. All right, and so going back to verse 29, where Peter said, and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, and you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in a place of honor at, the, at the, his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would, would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. In this last verse, when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. At this point, they were so upset that they were willing to, to what it implies is breach what was the Roman law. They, they were going to, on their own, have these men put to death, which they weren't allowed to do, which was going to be a risk. I mean, this is just how angry they were. And then we're going to continue into verse 34. But one member, uh, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, he stood up and ordered the men, the apostles, be sent outside the council chamber for a while. You know, get the kids out of here. The parents are going to discuss what they need to do before they freak out and kill somebody. Verse 35, then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do with these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thidius who pretended to be someone great. 
About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and his followers were scattered. So my advice is this. Leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it'll soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. Now, what, what he was saying here is interesting because it's like you almost see this hint of curiosity of him of like maybe just slightly possibly this could be of God. But the other half of this is saying when we have uprisings start like this, when a movement like this starts that is outside of the bounds of Roman law, these are the religions that you can pick from. When, when something like this begins to happen, the Romans handle it and they put these other guys to death and they got rid of it and then it was gone. And specifically with the case of Judas of Galilee, we have a little bit more extra biblical writing on him. He was someone during a census, they, um, the, the government was saying, we need to find out how many people are so we can appropriately tax and get the, the most amount of money that we can. Something's never changed, right? You know, the, the government's trying to just get as much as they can. And he led a rebellion that, that w- was, was doing well, and then it, it was squashed, and he was put to get, death, and it all went to nothing. And, and what what they had realized is that we don't need to get blood on our hands. We can just let the Roman authorities deal with this. And when we think of the Roman authorities, we often think of history class, but sometimes we we jump over the fact that this empire was the greatest and the strongest empire throughout history. I I mean, as far as nations and empires go, about 1,500 years, they were the dominant force on the planet. I mean, they make America and our grip on the world look minuscule. I mean, we're, we're just a little baby nation compared to them. And, and for, for them, they, they said it would take an act of God for them to survive. Unless God is on their side, this is going to get wiped out, just like all the other ones. And, and we, you know, years later, we hear this and we say, okay, you know, of course an act of God can preserve the church. Of course the church can, can survive, you know, the Roman persecutions that happened, as well as the Jewish persecutions. Of course God is able and powerful enough to act in those places and in that way and make sure that the church survives. And we have this head knowledge that God is able to do that in that society, in that culture, and he can do great things. But I believe that there's a disconnect, especially amongst us, the American church, of saying God can do that in history, but when it comes to my anxiety, I I don't know if God's capable or willing to do anything. And in fact, if it gets into like the area of depression in the American church, not only am I not sure if God will do anything or could do anything, one thing I'm convinced of is if, if I'm struggling with depression, I sure can't talk about it at church. If I have an addiction, then, then I need to definitely hide that from everyone else at church. We don't just question the power of God being able to work in our own life, but we, we've questioned whether or not the power of God will show up when I'm struggling amongst other people. And so the church has become this place where, where we come to and we feel like we have to wear, wear this mask where everything is okay. But the reality is, we need God to show up in our life. And I say we because that, that includes church leadership pastors as well. So, so many guys that I'm close friends with because they're, they're church planters and we're trying to do this crazy thing all in different parts uh, of the nation. We were, we were shocked and heartbroken this week 
Because a young pastor who's about my age, he has three sons, a great wife, he's leading a church that we hope to be a few years down the road. He was struggling with depression and he took his life. And look, like, he loved Jesus. And he loved people. But there was part of his struggle that he felt like he couldn't bring out. And I want to start from the top down on, on saying, whether you're a leader, whether it's me, the church is supposed to be a place that is safe enough and powerful enough to work on the heart level things that we're facing. And the church that I want us to be and the type of person that I want to be is someone where if there is something that's happening in your marriage or in your personal life, that you know you can talk about it. That you know it's okay to be going through a rough season. And I want the people who sit around you to just adopt that same mindset that you don't have to put on the face here. It's okay if there's a sickness. It's okay if there's heartache. It's okay if there's addiction. What's not okay is to keep it hidden. The, the church is supposed to be a place that because, uh, because we're all broken, because we've all found healing in Jesus, we want to see him work, and so we don't have to keep these things hidden. And, and it's not by the act of coming to this place that, w- that we impact lives and families and change our city, but it's by being the church that Scripture describes us to be that we're able to change our city. I, I want to say it this way. We don't change the world by going to church. We change the world by being the church. And being the church isn't just coming to worship. Being the church is living out the teachings of Jesus Christ. Being the church is obeying what he's called us to do. Not not just for the people who are far away from God, but for each other, for the people in our own households, just even for yourself. Because when you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, when you live and be the church that he has called you to be, you're going to experience more joy, more peace, More love is what scripture promises. Those are the fruits of the spirit. They pop up when you obey and follow Christ, when his presence is with you. And that's the mission for your life. That's also the mission for our city. That we be the church that's described in scripture. And and no, no power, no government, no empire, no addiction, no struggle, no anxiety, no depression is more powerful than our God. And so we can trust those things into his hand. We can trust those worries into his hand. And we need to put down this posture that the American church has taken that we have nothing to offer our city because we have the greatest hope and the greatest healing out of anyone to offer our city. We, we ha- have a great treasure that has been found that should be shared, but it's been hidden for too long. And too, too long we felt like we have to apologize for our hope in Christ. Uh, I mean, you, the, the leadership of the temple, when if you look in the passage, they actually say, you, you have to stop preaching that name. It's like they didn't even want to say the name. There's something about the name of Jesus that like it's okay to talk about God, but when you begin to talk about Jesus, that sets off like some alarms. Because Jesus had some very specific claims And because if you look at his teachings, he called people to obey his teachings because they have results. And and so we need to be forthright. We need need to be willing to to speak about what Jesus has done in our life and what he wants to do in other people's lives. And and I'm going to pick back to the passage before I get too far off my notes here. Back to to verse 40. And, And 
So, so he just said, let's not do anything. Let's not put the blood on our hands. Let's let the Romans handle this. It'll die out like all the other movements. And in verse 40, it says, the others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Let's just pause right there because we, we think, okay, flogged or beaten or whipped. Unless you, you recently have seen like the passion of the Christ, it's easy to forget exactly how severe this was. I mean, when, when they were whipped, it, it, it was with a whip that had pieces of bone or metal and, or sharp stones, and, and it would be used on both the front and the back, and it, it would be, you know, whipped in and pulled out, and the goal was to leave scars. The goal was to, to terrify anyone else from doing the kind of things that they did. And in this situation, the apostles not only had to experience it, but they had to watch their close friends experience it as well. To, to be flogged wasn't just the pain uh, of the moment, but it, it was to then carry those scars with you for the rest of your life, which would have been the mark of a criminal in this day. For having a confident hope and a boldness to preach the gospel, these men then had to carry these scars that would have been associated with criminals, and as people saw them, they would have thought, that person is not trustworthy. And this doesn't relate too much to our day in our society because we don't, we don't have that happening here in America. But I know that, you know, in another way, if someone at your, de- at your workplace sees you reading your Bible, there might be murmuring. There might be conclusions that are drawn. Oh, she's one of those hateful Christians. Um, there might be questions. And one of the, the questions is, if people are going to murmur or start rumors, is it, is it worth it? If people are going to think less of you because you're reading scripture, because you're supporting causes that line up with scriptural values, is it worth it to be thought less of because you're living out the hope that God has called you to? They bore the scars of criminals for doing the right things. Do we, fear, do we fear looking like a failure or a fool? Do we fear bearing loss for Christ's name for following him? Largely, Christianity in America is not something where you experience loss or difficulty when you follow it. And that has, I think, added to the fact that boldness just hasn't been a part of Christianity here for the last couple decades. I'm going to put up on the screen this quote from Martin Luther that I felt like really connected with this topic. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. And it's true that Jesus paid the cost for us, but he suffered a very high cost to give us his grace. And there, there are things, there are addictions in our flesh, there are habits that we know right now, we've allowed them to live in our life and they don't line up with a scriptural calling. It is not obedience to what Christ has called and we need to put those things to death in our life. And so one of the first costs is that decision of death to self and life to God. And I'm going to live the way that he's called me to live. And sometimes along the way of being obedient to the way that God's calling us to live, there's other costs. Um, you know, I don't think they're going to be as severe as what we see in Scripture. If you go to Mel's Diner today a- after church and you ask your waitress if you, there's anything you can pray for her about when you guys pray for your meal, the, the manager's not going to come out with a whip and beat you for it. Like, we don't pay those kind of costs. But there is the social awkward cost. Like, if I pray for people, if I invite people to church. I understand that there's a socially awkward cost, but 
is it worth it? Like, first of all, what, what is it that made these apostles and these disciples so willing to pay this kind of a cost for their faith? What, why were they so bold? I, I think there's a couple different in- ingredients that, that made them get to the situation where they were willing to pay whatever cost. And I'd, I'd say the, the first ingredient was, was they were familiar with Jesus' teachings. They had studied what Jesus said about how to live, about, about the truth that everyone is going to have an eternity somewhere, that there is only one way to heaven, that there's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. They, they were familiar with the things that Jesus taught, and so that shaped the way that they lived. One of the second things is, is kind of an interesting one, but, I, but I'd say failure. I'd say failure is an ingredient to, to being able to live a bold life for God. Because one is, it says that they stepped out and they tried, and and they weren't successful on their first try, but they didn't give up after their first try. They tried to take a step forward, and it didn't work out. And and like in the case of Peter, when he denied Jesus, and he had the experience of Jesus saying, I'm not done with you. Like, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. You have a role to fulfill. And and so many times when Jesus taught them, they immediately had no clue, and they failed the the, the test after the message, and Jesus had to go back through and and, and re-explain it, which should set the standard for our life. It's okay to fail when you're trying to step forward, but it's not okay to give up. It's okay to have a misstep, but it's not okay to just quit forever. Failure, I think, is part of us growing in our boldness. The, the third piece is the Holy Spirit. And, if, and this might sound like the crazy over-spiritual side, but the fact is there's things that God is going to call us to do in our life that are impossible unless He is involved. And, and there's times that as you walk with Christ, and I believe you'll experience this if you give Him your heart, there's times where it's like, I feel like God is just pushing on my heart that I have to go talk to this person. And the Holy Spirit increases our boldness because he gives us confidence that I am calling you. I am asking you to do this. I am with you. You are not alone. You do not face this alone. And the Holy Spirit is part of us being bold. And the fourth, and I'd say really the foundation for our boldness is love. I think that their days with Jesus produced in them a love for God that, that, that is unrivaled. They, they saw Jesus just pour his life out for them. And, and when you begin to understand the height and the depth of the love that God has for you, it empowers you to love in a way that you didn't think you were able to. And what scripture teaches is the result of having a close intimacy of love with God is that it, it causes you to love other people. And so it, it propelled them, you know, it's not, we want to stay in the upper room and have an intimate time of prayer with God and just love God, love God, love God, but we love God so much we have to go out and we have to take this message wherever we go. And it propelled them out into their city to, to share and to be bold and be willing to pay any cost to see this message go out. And so church, my, my, my challenge today for you, it, it, it's connected to boldness. And I just want you to begin to question, like, has my love for God driven me to take steps of boldness in my faith? Because the church, as it's described in Scripture, is a bold church, willing to take risks, willing to pay personal cost to see the kingdom of God advance. And so I'm going to give you 
you know, it, it's great being bold. That's, that's kind of a wide concept. I'm going to give you three baby steps to make this easy, to make this apply, all right? The first bold baby step is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. I know we have this mo- those moments with a coworker, with a child, where a spouse, where we feel like we need to say something in regards to our faith, in regards to our belief in Christ, in regards to being in plugged in and planted at a church, and we feel this moment where it's like, oh, why is it so hard to just say this? Take the step and be bold. When you know you should speak and it would be easier to say, say nothing, say something, speak up. The second baby step is taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. We, we know there's times throughout our day where it's like, this is an opportunity to be generous and bless someone else. This is an opportunity to serve someone else. This is an opportunity to share about the hope that I've found in Christ. Take the opportunities that are there. And, and I did the third one, didn't I? Yes, and, and the second one is deciding, no, I didn't, I'm, I'm good. All right, third one, bold is creating opportunities. Um, the third baby step to boldness is creating opportunities. As, as a pastor, and band, if you guys could come up on the stage, we're gonna uh, wrap this thing up. Not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, because this is something that I believe every Christian has to walk through. There's times where there's someone in your life where you know, man, I need to connect with them. I need to talk with them about this pressing issue, and it is just not coming up. And I've waited, and I've waited, would would just a door open for me to talk about this. And you realize, man, this door is shutting. I, I don't know if I can continue on in this relationship unless it gets talked about. And sometimes you have to just ask and open that door and make that opportunity. And when we become a church that, that is willing to speak up, when we become a church that is willing to seize the opportunities that God puts in front of us, and when we become a church that is willing to create the opportunity to speak about God's love. I believe that's when we get the joy of seeing families change. That's when we get the joy of seeing a city change. But it all starts with one heart being willing to step forward and pay a cost. So church, are we willing to be bold? not because we want to be a jerk for Jesus, not because we want to take a grand stand, not because we want to spotlight. Because our love for God is so authentic that we can't help want other people to have this too. I mean, the foundation for all of this. This is a call to action for Christians. If you're figuring out your faith, man, this isn't necessarily something that I'm pushing on you, but for those of you guys who call yourself Christ followers, Will you allow the love that God has for you and your love for him to propel you into boldness? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you use us, that you call us, that even when we feel completely unworthy to speak up and say a word, that you will use our broken life to encourage, to help, to heal someone else. So Father, wipe away the anxiety, wipe away the fear, and give us courage to be bold. And as we do, will you just meet us right there?
Would your spirit encourage us right there in those moments? When it happens this week, give us the courage to be bold. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For those of you guys who call Gulfside Church your home church, uh, we're going to receive the tithes and offerings. If you're new here, there is no pressure to give. That's not what this is about, but we give with joy in our heart because we want to propel this vision and mission we have in our city forward. So thank you for giving generously and obeying God in that area. The ushers will come forward to receive the offering as we sing.